The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Breaking, a baseball news podcast on the Pitcher List Podcast Network. I'm Tim Jackson here with TC Zenka in the second week of the Major League Baseball season. TC, how are you? I am good, very good. It's a long season, though. Man, we're on week two here. Whew, got a long ways to go. The, the Nats just finished game two. I just feel like, man, oh, man, there's a lot to go. Yeah, you know, I saw, I think it was their game yesterday where their color guy was, um, he was explaining that he'd never seen. Wait, hold on, hold on. <laughs> I got some autoplay going. Oh, no. Semyon hit a home run. <laughs> okay, go on. Uh, the the color guy for the Nats was saying that it was the first opening day where one team had batting averages and the other didn't that he had seen. I thought that was really kind of interesting <laughs> in terms of processing the Nats' COVID delay, which we can get into a little bit uh, now that we know who was uh, who was put on the IL. We'll get into that in a little bit as we got into it and touched on it just last week. Uh, really, though, the big idea this week is the Nick Castellanos suspension and trying to contextualize it as best we can, it's an odd one. So let's let's frame this up before we get into the nitty-gritty of it, TC. That rapscallion. <laughs> He's a rapscallion. I've always said so. Uh, so Nick Castellanos gets suspended two games, ultimately for flexing over Jake Woodford at home plate. Uh, he was plunked in 1AB, up and in. He got hit on the shoulder, didn't care for it, had some opinions about it, Ultimately went to first base. He gets to third, scores on a wild pitch that missed in the same spot Castellanos actually got hit in. So simply, Woodford didn't have it that day, right? Like that much is clear at that point. But Castellanos slides in the home head first. He gets up. He's fired up. He flexes over Woodford, who is covering. He walks away. Yadi Molina happens to get involved at that point. The bench is clear. There's a lot of pushing and shoving and probably curse words as there aren't a lot of bench-clearing brawls that aren't actually brawls. But Castellanos gets pegged for two games, the only one to get suspended. So what exactly was Castellanos actually suspended for, TC? It's really hard to tell. I mean, a two-game suspension, I mean, he's technically speaking, he's suspended for, what do you call that? Uh, bro went out or something like <laughs> this kind of being being gaudy with his displays of emotion. I don't really understand what good is a of a is a suspension of any kind 
that suspends him 1% of the season. It's 1.2% of the season that he's being held out now. What kind of infraction even is that? Like, I've never understood baseball suspensions because they never seem long enough. It's as if the league office doesn't really understand that it's a 162-game season and that you can suspend a guy for a week at a time, and it's not that big a deal. Yeah. And if they really want to curb something here, then they should give him a, a real suspension. Otherwise, it seems like like most of the Honorable Commissioner Manfred's suspensions, this is really just a show of a show of, of force and wanting to set a precedent to to curb you know action before it gets too out of hand. Instead of the thing that actually happened, right? So you're saying they're almost like trying to look ahead and how can we avoid this behavior in the future? But when it's 1.2% of the season, like you're saying, like I don't even know if that qualifies as a slap on the wrist. Like what what is the goal there? This is like this you mentioned the way the league always doles out these suspensions. One thing that has always gotten under my skin is just how pitchers are suspended, right? They get suspended for five games, but it's like, well, if it's a starter, they're only missing one. So what is right. the real penalty there? <laughs> like they just hang in the clubhouse for those four games, like or they're in their hotel room or whatever? Like I I'm just confounded by the league office i think you, you framed it really well in saying that it's the league office really trying to set this precedent for a thing that didn't actually get addressed like i don't is this one of the weirder things in baseball to you how they dole out suspensions it definitely is i mean what even is this suspension for how is his flexing at home plate any different than what everybody does now when they hit a home run jock peterson hit a home run today in the eighth inning threw his bat down, screamed at his at his teammates who weren't anywhere nearby. Obviously, they were in the dugout. They were pretty far away. And it's the same same exact show of emotion. The difference is that Castellanos was standing over Woodford. And so, I don't know, is it more emasculating this way? Is this like a uh, some like latent form of homophobia from the commissioner's office? I really feel like what is what did they see that was so much different? Right, because the thing is, if – Yadi Molina doesn't step in. And if you watch the clip, Molina actually, he's the one who initiates contact on anybody in this. He's the one who puts a hand on Nick Castellanos. If he doesn't do that, they'd probably get over it. Like maybe another red gets gets hit, right? Or maybe they get one up and in or something, or they get brushed back off the plate. But like nobody came off the bench until Molina entered into the fray. And Molina as a guy who is pretty well-renowned throughout the league, who is probably on track for the Hall of Fame and who is a big part of the Cardinals in their recent history, he gets nothing. I'm just so confused. Like, you're saying, like, where does the actual suspension come in for? Is it for broing out? Is it for too much emotion? Is it any different than a guy doing some dramatic bat flip? Like, and... Is it bad? Like, can I ask you that straight up? Is it bad that Nick Castellanos flexed over Woodford at home plate? No, not at all. It is not bad. It is good. It is a good thing. Like, we want to see the players be emotional. And, you know, I'll say two other things about this. The first being, if a pitcher hits you with the pitch and then you score, you get to flex. Like, that's that's one of the things you get as a, as a hitter. If you get hit by a pitch and then you later do something good against that pitcher – you get to strut a little bit. I mean, that's that's part of the deal, I think. That's part of the, you know, unwritten implicit rules. You get to do that. And it's the responsibility of the other team not to be too sensitive about it. And the second thing is that Yadier Molina was doing exactly that. 
Like he stepped in. If you're not going to suspend him for what he did, then what he's doing is just self-policing the issue. And then it's done. He did it. He did his part. He stood up for his guy. He pushed Castellanos away. Bench is clear, whatever. Nothing ever happens then. It's just good television. Unless you're Amir Garrett. It's like, it's like bad good television. <laughs> Unless you're Amir Garrett. Yeah. Taking on well, all of the pirates. He doesn't even let the, the benches clear. He goes to the bench. He goes like he goes to them. So Molina is either self-policing this thing such that you don't have to step in if you're the league office, or he should also be penalized, or he should also be suspended. I think he was fined, wasn't he? I uh, actually don't remember if he was fined off the top of my head. It's because probably just that I am so um, fired up by the fact that like it played out so oddly. Like If you're going to suspend anybody, it should probably be even, right? You should kind of like in hockey where like uh, the minors can cancel each other out if they each get concurrent minors and like they go to the box, but they don't lose the guy on the ice, that kind of thing. Uh, and ultimately... I don't know. You're mentioning the emotion. You mentioned you mentioned also that if you, as a pitcher, hit somebody and then they come around to score on you, it's kind of part of the deal, right? Like that's what I don't quite understand is that there is from the league this sense of talking out of both sides of their mouth, which I know it's very strange for the league office to talk out <laughs> of both sides of their mouth. But here we are again, because even in recent history, we had that ad campaign from them that emphasized let the kids play right where you had all the games young superstars saying let the kids play the setup was a full press conference it was seeing them demonstrate that monstrous emotion throughout the field after what was assumed to be big moments all of that and yet like like even last week you know we mentioned making Tatis apologize for the the monster home run he hit in a blowout game last year things like that uh, we're, we're suspending Castellanos, who is a veteran at this point, older, still on the younger side of things, but definitely a veteran. Oh, yeah. I, I'm just trying to think, like, what is okay in baseball to express? Because to me, what Castellanos did, that happens on a nightly basis in the NBA. And say what you want about the NBA, whether you're a fan or not, they clearly know how to engage the fans. And, and baseball is sitting here like, well, who are we engaging? Uh, and will they like this, or will they kind of, uh, will they, will they, you know, snort out their nose like, how dare he? Yeah, I don't know why the why the league office is trying so hard to turn fans away. I mean, this is a it's a moment that is exciting. We want to see the players be emotional. Baseball does not allow for a lot of that. There's not, it's not a, a body to body sport. So like. Yes, it's weird to see them to get two players like that where they're so up close and personal. It's still no different than than any other kind of flexing or bat flip or anything else that happens in baseball. It's just that they were actually in close proximity. And baseball can use a little bit of that. Absolutely. And one thing that really sticks out, we mentioned Amir Garrett a moment ago. You know, he said he wants people to think of the Cincinnati Reds as some bat flipping, showboating, sons of a gun. And I love that. Like the heck yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the, the Reds have been so endearing the last couple of years. I think they have such such great personalities uh, that actually attract attention to the game in a in a positive light. You have Amir Garrett, you have even Lucas Sims, and the two of them saying like, "No, I want to be the closer in camp," but like still being friendly as teammates. You have Castellanos in this moment 
uh, popping off. And I don't, I don't know. I don't feel as though it was really all that disrespectful. And I, I don't like see Trent Rosencrantz of the athletic, uh, the, the Reds beat writer, his response to this was saying that MLB claims to want to uh, claims to want emotion, but they're tone deaf in how they handled this kind of situation. So I'm kind of like, I'm just so confused. I'm sure that's coming across as I'm talking now. And like, we're saying, what does the league want? Who are they catering to? Uh, so in this hypothetical where I'm saying, if we, if we tagged one guy on each team, they each get a two game suspension, even if it's terrifically dumb to suspend somebody for two games. Is it Molina? Like if Molina was also suspended, would this be any less stupid to you? No, not really. I mean, the umpires are there for a reason, right? They did their thing. They kept it, everything under control. I mean, it's one thing when, yeah, when Amir Garrett goes and fights everybody, but nothing really happened here. It was just a scuffle. And so what are, what exactly, like what lesson are you trying to teach besides just don't show emotion on the field, which is, again, like you said, counter to everything the league's been trying to say the last two years. For the Reds' part, I love that they're leaning into this. And you know what? They have been for a while now. You know, since that, we can go back to the Yasiel, Yasiel Puig trade, right? This was December 2018. The Reds had been just losing, just always losing. And their attendance had gone down so much that they had they drew less people than, like, FC Cincinnati. Like, the, the football like club, the, yeah. Yeah, the secondary, it was like the second rate football club that wasn't even in the MLS yet or whatever level they're in now. I think they, they jumped up a level. So they might be in the MLS now or wherever they are. I'm not sure. But at the point, at that time, they weren't yet and, and they were outdrawing the Reds. And so when the Reds made that deal for Puig, it was, it was clearly like, yeah, we got to get some fans in here. Like Puig is an entertainment machine. Let's get this guy on the roster. And even if this ends up being a bit of a disaster as it was, because they, they gave up Jeter Downs, who, ended up being the centerpiece for Mookie Betts, for goodness sakes. Like, it was still a success in that, like, it made the Reds relevant. And they've been relevant really ever since. Like, they have found that they have their own guys who are already entertainment machines, you know, i.e. Amir Garrett. But they've been leaning into this hard, and I think it's, I think it's great. I do love that they're leaning into it. I really think that is, like I said a, a moment ago, endearing. I think it is a positive, a net positive, because even, like, you know, we, we talked about it with Bryce Harper, too. You said it, it kind of fizzled out, given the context, the, the bit of a circus that was built around him in Washington, but very much back with Philadelphia. He makes the Phillies enjoyable in a way they had not been in nearly a decade. And for the life of me, I cannot understand why the league does not want these personalities that are clearly bringing eyes to the game and now the attention—the attention isn't on how great of a moment that was for Castellanos, or what that might do for the Reds in the clubhouse, or how they could be performing in the week or two after, and if that sets the tone for the season. The conversation is on what what do we do? How do we respond to the league? That's so frustrating. How do we respond to Rob Manfred and his ridiculous face and a bunch of other faceless people we don't even ever see? Instead of the actual moment of baseball on hand, I don't know. I, I the more I think about it, the more I think that baseball loves emphasizing the right way to do something, and they love pointing to it's a matter of unwritten rules. It's a matter of 
respecting your opponent and the game. And we use these vague terms, these vague platitudes that sound good, but really are reductive, really do limit who's allowed to do what and when in the game. And instead of any given body having any actual semblance of structure that does police the game, for lack of a better term, we just have all of these indifferent rogue parties acting however they best see fit in a given moment like this that does penalize Nick Castellanos, that does penalize even the concept, the idea of showing that kind of emotion. I think that's what offends me so deeply <laughs> as a fan that, well, you can't even think about this. You, you, get, you get fired up, you keep that to yourself. You do it back in the dugout when you get back there. You celebrate with your team, but don't you dare do it on the field where there are cameras. And yet the, uh, the net suspensions for this, this event is greater than the net suspensions for the Astros cheating scandal for, for players, right? Like they can't have it both ways. And it seems like the office just like wants to put out this, like this face of like, Oh yeah, we, we follow the rules, but at the same time, they're terrified of actually punishing anybody for anything significant. And Manfred has said about things that like, Oh, there wasn't a precedent. There's not a precedent. Then I can't, then I can't do anything. He's like sent out letters to two teams about certain issues saying like, you know, this is what's going to happen if this happens again. And that was basically what happened with the cheating scandal that he kind of backed himself into a corner and said like the umpire or the manager and the GM will be culpable. And then he just kind of stuck with that and said, you know, that's where we are. They don't want to, it seems like they don't want to like further exacerbate things with the union or something because they really don't ever really hand out significant suspensions. It's just these ticky tack things that are meant to like prove a point. And I think the Astro scandal is a great parallel because they did end up penalizing Jeff Luna and they did end up penalizing AJ Hinch and Hinch is back in the game. And I think it's fair to maybe speculate on how much he could have controlled given the structure they had there, or if he could have done more and didn't and deserve the penalty. Uh, Luna, I think is another case entirely, but like you're saying, none of the players got anything. And this is where none of the primary actors got anything. I mean, Hinch and Luna, yes, they were responsible to a certain extent, but they weren't the primary actors of the, of the scandal. I mean, Cora, he got his suspension. Right. So he's like the only guy who's really directly related to the whole thing. They got punished. I mean, the rest of it was all just for show. And because no one's going to kick up a fuss about AJ Hinch and Jeff Luna, because you know, fans don't care about that. Right. Right. So why are you, why are you insistent on drawing attention to yourself as a league office for these penalties that are ultimately mindless, that are that are just nothing burgers all over the place. That's what is so frustrating. And like you're saying with, with the players and none of the actual people who did the cheating for the Astros really getting penalized, I understand that some of that was a union issue, right? You don't want to get into muddy waters with a union. This is kind of like the, the Bill Belichick idea right. of a few uh, for the, the Patriots right, right, right. cheating scandal years ago where he's like, look, you guys bring this up. I've got like a whole shoebox of dirt that you don't want out in the public, right? Like you get into that area if you get it, because then you're bringing in union representation. And then even in that light, well, this, you know, that get that brings some shade to the union and their, their function. And, um, which I think is another another conversation perhaps for another day with, with how we might perceive unions and, and their functions. Uh, but very frustrating to find that when people actually do something, the suspensions are so infrequently there. And when somebody just plays baseball 
the suspension is. Like, I, I don't know. Even even with the Astros, I think it, I saw it recently where uh, Mike Gianella of of Baseball Prospectus was saying he mentioned or he thinks idly. In, intermittently about whether the Astros are still cheating this year because they didn't face any penalty, right? Like, right. And that's not to bring 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 Mike into it, but it's it's a fair thought, right? If your slap on the wrist is really like a hypothetical, where the league is basically saying, "Hey, you know what? If you really do this again, we're gonna have some trouble," and they're like, "Well, prove it." Like, <laughs> gotta- yeah, I mean, that's why people keep juicing, right? After all this time, we still get steroid suspensions because the the potential gain of making it to the majors is so much greater than the potential loss of getting caught that, yeah, it's still kind of worth the gamble. Yes. And that's that's like, what was the gamble here made by Castellanos? That's what I can't understand. And I keep emphasizing how frustrating it is to see what he was, what he's ultimately Subjected to, I guess, is a tough phrase because, like you're saying, it's it's 1.2% of the season, and he's appealed it, which means it'll probably get knocked down to one game, so then it's 0.6% of the season, yeah. right? But it's so stupid to have to expend this amount of energy on what the league is getting across because we still can't figure it out. Like, if you had to boil it down to one thing, TC, and say this is what the league's trying to get at here— what would it be? I'm not even really sure. I mean, I think it's the proximity of the of the action that made it a thing. I think because they were so close together and because Castellanos was literally standing above him that the the act of gloating made the made the possibility of a physical altercation that much greater. And so I think that that's kind of what they're ultimately trying to get at is, you know, we don't want physical altercations and this was as close as it could get to causing one without causing one. So, you know, back off, guys. So you're saying the the physical space between Castellanos and Woodford, or the lack thereof, is really what they dislike. They saw that, they're like, ooh, no, ooh, got to step back from that. Yeah, I mean, otherwise we've seen, we've seen that exact flex all the time from hitters when they hit home runs. Again, Jock Peterson did the exact thing today. Like, that exact flex... He did it today when he hit a home run. He's not going to get suspended for two days. But Castellanos was over a guy. It did lead to some shoving. And because they were so close, it has the potential to lead for for something physical happening. So if but I just don't really see it. I don't I don't really understand why, you know, how a two-game suspension really accomplishes what whatever whatever it is they're trying to accomplish. If Woodford was standing, would there have been a suspension? Uh, that's a good question. I think I mean, it depends on how Woodford responds, really, I, I think. I mean, I think it probably plays out similarly, and he probably gets suspended anyway, but but it's less likely, I think. I think my instinct is to say that, depending on how Woodford responds, if he's really that close to him and they're standing, then yeah, he still probably gets the, gets the suspension. So what if, now I'm thinking purely hypothetical, right? I'm really just trying to get at what on earth the league is trying to get at. We see players get in the faces of umpires. We see managers get in the faces of umpires. The no-no is if they make contact, right? They, they do that right. little chest bump, and then they're tossed. Yeah. They're not usually suspended afterward. So if, if it was with an umpire standing very close, clearly physically imposing, and there's contact, 
is Castellanos tossed? And is there a, an additional penalty? Or do you think it's just he's tossed out of that game? I think it's probably just, I don't know. I mean, I think it's hard to know because, again, it's hard to really know what they're trying to get at here. I mean, I think it should have been the umpires. I don't see why this is an issue that the league office should have stepped in on. I mean, if it was an issue during the game, then the umpire should have handled it. And if they didn't handle it correctly, then find the umpires. Like, talk to them about it. They're the ones who are supposed to adjudicate the process on the field. Right. There's no, there's nothing. It's not like the umpires were were unable to control the situation. They controlled the situation. So what exactly was it that didn't work about the, the on-field process the way it exists today, such that the league felt like they had to step in on top of that, that process? I think that's a great point because everybody went back to the bench. Nobody got hurt. The game went on and was played regularly, right? And that makes me think of another hockey idea in terms of what you said in terms of, you know, why does the league feel they need to step in after the fact? This is This is not like hockey where a hit can happen at an extremely high speed that is questionable after the fact, right? Where you can really see it in slow-mo and you're like, ooh, you know, and he led with the elbow or he went up at the head or he left his skates and he, he's off the ice. It was as clear-cut as possible. There, there's no need to slow down and look at it in, in you know, a thousand frames a second to see what right. transpired here to say after the fact, you know, as a league office, we really need to step in. We need to look out to protect our players. And we need to, sorry, you need to sit for a couple games. Sorry. None of that happened. Yeah, I mean, the umpires saw everything the same way the league office did. I mean, it's not like, you know, on the slow-mo, you can see Castellanos be like, I'm going to kill your mother. <laughs> like, we saw it the way it happened. Like, there's no re- the, the league has no new information. The umpires are there to make a ruling. And they did. They separated them, sent them back to their you know, little dugout houses and life goes on. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Although apparently it it comes with a a pause and a a long consideration of what they've really tried to do here. So look, we've hit home pretty hard here that the league had no certain message they were trying to deliver. Two more things on this really coming up across my head as we discuss this stuff. One, what message does the league actually send when it makes these official but contradictory moves? I don't know. I think it is a warning to players, not one that they're necessarily going to heed, though. I think it's really just precedent setting. I think it puts the league office in a position where they feel more comfortable suspending somebody later on in the season for something that they deem inappropriate and probably more inappropriate than this. Okay, fair enough. Two, does baseball actually want to let the kids play? No, clearly not. I mean, Otherwise, they would literally let them play. They're literally not letting them play, right? They're taking Castellanos out of the game. Yeah. And for what reason? I just don't understand it. Like, especially this early in the season, let there be some momentum, right? Like, it's a long season. It's going to be – it's tough to keep interest. You want there to be rivalries. You want the next time the Cardinals come to town that Reds fans are paying extra attention. You want that, like, there's national attention. You want us to be, like – watching that and while in some you might be able to argue that this brings more attention to it so we might still be looking for it except now i feel like there's definitely nothing's going to happen the next time they come to town so it feels to me like it's been kind of diffused i think that's a great point that there would have been definitely local eyes on those games a little more closely probably national attention 
And then it might have actually built a legitimate rival instead of like, well, they're in the same division, so they clearly dislike each other. Which is where I feel like we're at now. And I just, just confounded. I don't know what baseball is getting at. And I think that really drives home the point that there is such a disconnect between Major League Baseball as an organization, as, as, a, as an office, and Major League Baseball fans, right? Like, I want to see that Cardinals game with the Reds. Next series, everybody's still fired up. I don't need them pegging baseballs at each other at 95 miles an hour, but I want to see a little more intensity, right? Like, and now we're not going to see it. Now it's going to be boring NL Central baseball in whenever the next matchup is, right? Like, plus think about poor Jake Woodford, who now <laughs> he's like the, the the nerdy kid who's being picked on. They've now they've now pulled him out. It's like, no, you just got to let him take his lumps. Now everyone knows who Jake Woodford is. We didn't have to know who he was. He was a long reliever. He was going to make his way slowly. Now we know he's the guy who got posterized by Nick Castellanos and who like the league office had to step in to protect. Ah, poor guy. Yeah, as he as he's thrown all of two and a third inning this year and 22 and a third in his major league career as a 24 year old. Yeah. God, there's just nothing good to come out of this. I wish that as you hear this, everyone, I wish you could see me and just how frustrated I am. <laughs> just he's like, so mad. He's like swinging axes and hammers around. He's so mad. He's just well, throwing a fit. I'm throwing my hands up a lot and I really wish that I wasn't. Um, I think this is a great moment to transition into this week in baseball because a lot is happening and, we touched on how there is obviously a disconnect between the people who run baseball and the people who like baseball and the people who play it. You wrote up this week, TC, at MLBTR, franchise values continue to be at an all-time high. This is the annual Forbes piece, right? All-time high. The Yankees saw a 5% bump. Uh, they are now worth over $5 billion dollars. The lowest valued franchise is still at $1.9 billion. So I, what, what was your process as you wrote through this piece? What were your thoughts that maybe you didn't, you know, didn't make it into the piece? And how does this maybe frame the disconnect between the league and the people who play the games and who enjoy those games? Well, honestly, I feel like the part that doesn't get talked about very much is that these values are a little bit confusing in terms of what they actually mean. Like they, they matter for stock pricing. They matter for sales when, when sales happen and they matter towards like uh, an owner's portfolio and his, and his overall value and what happens when they want to sell the team. But it doesn't change the fact that they had, the teams did have huge operating losses last year, huge revenue losses. And all this basically means is that, the stock market thinks that baseball is going to be fine in the long term, that it's going to return to where it's been, which is to say that teams are going to continue to make lots of money, right? That's the only reason these, these values are so high. And it's largely based on how much Steve Cohen paid for the Mets, which is, which is a little bit misleading because it's the Mets and not, you know, the Rangers. And then there's also the, the private equity money that the Red Sox got or are, are, have a deal to get and those values were both so high that basically it sends a message that yeah baseball is doing just fine and the red sox you know yes they're getting all this private equity uh this, they're getting this cash influx but it basically doesn't have anything to do with the red sox and it's not gonna affect the red sox it's, it's part it's about the other parts of the fenway sports group and the other parts of their business they want to buy another soccer team and they want to expand their expand their holdings in the sporting world 
that money's not going to the Red Sox. And yet we do see it be here as part of the valuation. So as much as I would like to kind of, you know, pile on and, and talk about how ridiculous teams are for not spending enough money and they are ridiculous for not spending enough money. I do think that these numbers themselves can be a little bit misleading in terms of, in terms of where organizations are today and how much and how, and what their finances look like today versus what their, what their long-term outlook is going to be. So you're saying here, even that as a league, yes, everybody's doing pretty well, despite last year with no attendance and, and all of that. Uh, but even within the league, it's these values are really being dictated by an even smaller handful of ownership groups or independent franchises. Yes, I think that's true. But I also think that that, that there's just a difference between long-term value and the, the kind of money you have, have on hand now. It's like if you're if you're a farmer and there's this there's this you know rogue fire that burns up your crops for the year, but everything, you know, the soil is all still good. Next next season you're gonna be fine again. Your long-term value of the farm, you're still gonna be okay, but it still means you don't have any food to sell right now. And that's kind of where teams are at right now a little bit. They don't have revenue right now. So they haven't been able to spend at historic levels. But because finances are so um, like non-transparent across the league, we can't help but be we can't help but suspicious. doubt and right, right. <laughs> we can't help but be suspicious of how much money they actually have, and and that teams aren't taking advantage of this moment to kind of scale back their payrolls for a year or two before you know scaling up a little bit, but not really getting back to to regular levels. So, so yes, I do think a couple things are happening. I do think that the that the high-end teams kind of distort the curve a little bit. You know, the Yankees are one of the three most valuable franchises in North America. That's not the case for, you know, all of these baseball teams. It's not the case for the Marlins and the Reds. And also that these values kind of obscure what the, what the issue is this year and last year and next year, while still understanding that it's going to be fine in the long term. That said, you know, the league had opportunities to bring cash in. I mean, they could have expanded, Expansion would have brought in, would have brought in a, a lump sum of money now, but it would have meant giving away part of the the long term revenue share, and they decided that they didn't need to do that, and that they weren't going to do that for a while because that would have been one option as a way to get more money in. Now you make the the new franchises in you know Montreal and uh, Louisville or wherever they're supposed to be. You make them buy into the league long term. Yes, the the revenue sharing pot gets a little bit smaller. Everyone gets a 32nd share instead of a 30th share. They decided that that wasn't worth it, that they didn't need, that they weren't that desperate to get cash in now and that they didn't want to give up this long-term value. So what we're really describing here is kind of the, the many moving parts of the financial aspect of the business side of baseball and franchise valuations. Uh, I think there's Definitely something to teams not communicating well that it means just because they're valued highly right now does not mean that they can necessarily spend in proportion in this particular moment. Uh, so this is something I've, I've kind of nibbled at the edges on throughout the course of our discussion this week. So let me just ask you outright, is, is there more of a disconnect between teams and the financial side versus the baseball side? 
is just because baseball is healthy overall, does that necessarily mean that the interest is there to put the product on the field, to draw the interest in the fans like we talked about last week and all the different ways to really win and what that looks like or means? Is there a gap here that ownership or ownership groups or the league office just does not care to fill? I think probably, I think that's probably the case. I mean, Commissioner Manfred has been a very, he's very pro owner, right? This is kind of his, his deal is that he, he does work for the owners. That is, those are his bosses, but unlike other sports like basketball, for instance, baseball has a bunch of kind of stodgy, stodgy tight-lipped owners who aren't interested in the kinds of social change and the kinds of, you know, public movement, traditionally speaking, that that we've seen from other other leagues like the NBA. I mean, that's why this NBA, the uh, the also moving All Star game was such a huge move and such a surprising move because it was so not MLB's style to to make that kind of stance, especially so early, because they, they don't typically get involved politically. They don't like to be. So, right. I mean, I think that there is a there is ultimately a disconnect. I don't know where exactly it is. That's kind of my thing is like, hmm. yes, you know, the star players get paid a ton. The mid-level players don't get paid as much. Like it's really hard to get that at, to that 10 year uh, service mark where your, your pension is fully vested. Like that's really hard to get to. And it's in part because of the way the financial system is set up because of arbitration, because young players are so cheap. And because of the way they've set up the, um, the luxury tax to kind of act as this, phantom barrier that that teams can steer clear from and have a, a a PR reason not to cross it even though they have they have the resources to do it but it's again it's also each of these teams it's more complex than just the payroll i mean the cubs take the cubs for example they before the pandemic they built out all of Wrigleyville right they bought they did all this development in the area around Wrigleyville, they spent poured tons of money into it, and eventually that money was supposed to make its way back to the team. But with the pandemic, they lost a lot of a lot of their potential revenue, right? So, like a lot of their money disappeared right away, and it wasn't necessarily because of the baseball parts of things. So, you know, the organizations are more complex than just you know you can't just do city population divided by payroll and, and see how teams are spending. It is more complex than that. At the same time, I don't think it's as complex as they make it out to be. Yeah, I think, I think I'm really inclined to agree when I phrased it as if there's a gap, they don't want to fill. I think you stated it better in that you can't quite put your finger on what the disconnect is. And I think they don't want us to be able to do that. And that to me is is very frustrating as a fan, as somebody who's really just grown to like you know, watch the Tigers in the afternoon all week this week because that was the baseball that was on. Uh, so it's it's very frustrating to know that there is a gap or or an issue there that that we can't quite put our finger on. And I think it's interesting that you mentioned the All Star Game. One note that one caveat that sticks out to me about the league moving the All Star Game is that they're moving it to Colorado, and we've talked about how Colorado is kind of a mess in general, right? Um, so it's interesting to seem as though they are rewarding the Rockies. That would that would kind of fit into the narrative that they don't care about the playing interest. But I think what was really just happening is that the Rockies were in line for an All-Star game anyway, right? They had some plans underway, so they can kind of accelerate them way easier than some of the other teams. But are they, uh, are but, they letting in more fans than most teams as well? 
in Denver? I believe I believe they are. And that could be I mean that could be big too. I think that the financial aspect of All-Star Games is weird. It's one of those things that like some businesses might benefit independently, but the cities tend to take on water when it comes to financing all of those things when it comes to to, right. to the operational it's like the, uh, like aspect. the Olympics. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, on a smaller scale cuz the Olympics are just they're a mess, right? Nobody yeah. makes money on the Olympics, but um so many moving parts to all of this. And, and um, just for the record, like the All-Star game is so much of the, the problem that we're talking about in terms of generating fan interest. I mean, the All-Star game is the least interesting part of the season now. It, it <laughs> is not something that's generated interest. Like until, you know, Vlad Guerrero has that epic duel with, was it Jock Peterson or? Like, the home know, run derby, which the is home run derby, which was great. But it hasn't been a thing. Game, though. Right. It hasn't been a thing for a <laughs> long time, though. And so. I mean, the fact that they can't get people interested in the All-Star game is a testament to, to kind of what's wrong with the game. Like, everything around it is just not really working that well. Yeah, I think that's... Uh, everything's just not working that well, and yet the, the wheels are still getting greased. It's just, a, a, again, confounding seems to be the word I keep coming back to this week. Um, I know I've come to certain words over various episodes that, that things are interesting or unique or... Or whatever, and this week I'm just confounded time today, and time again. Today's word uh, is confounded. <laughs> I feel confounded about Major and League if, Baseball's actions this week. If we if we bag Sesame Street as a sponsor, <laughs> that'll be that'll be quite a coup. Uh, but let's move on to this week's injury roundup because that's going to be another theme this season, right? That we've already hit on because it's already been prevalent. There are three things that really stick out, plus the Nats with their COVID and the clarity they provided by uh, by adding guys to their injury list. One, uh, Fernando Tatis Jr. Uh, shoulder subluxation injury, basically dislocation, uh, slight tear of... He swung so hard that he ripped his shoulder out of his socket. That's what happened. <laughs> yeah, kind of brutal. Uh, I saw it phrased, I think it was again, Dennis Lynn at The Athletic or his editor... Uh, saying that the shoulder is the most flexible, but also the most like uh, sensitive part of the body. Uh, so Tatis goes down. He's only on the 10-day IL for now. The team seems to have a positive outlook in terms of the rest of the season and him being able to play. So there's one injury. Tim Anderson and the White Sox are still awaiting some news on an MRI on his hamstring. Uh, James Paxton and the Mariners seem to be dealing with another injury. Paxton threw a pitch last night, so Wednesday night, or Tuesday night, uh, and he just looked angry afterward. Called out the trainer, just left the game, didn't try to stick in, and that is a forearm strain, which is usually a precursor to Tommy John. So with all of these big injuries to big-name players, TC... One, how do you process them overall? And two, which, which do you, you know, how do they shake out in hierarchy in terms of importance? Well, there's no injury more important than Fernando Tatis Jr. I mean, it's gigantic for him and for the league. I mean, he is, they, they've, the league has kind of put all their eggs in his basket, right? And, and not just the league, but because of what AJ Preller did, the Padres GM, because of the way he, he built this team up this summer, he did. I think Preller did make them injury proof, even against a Tatis injury. I think they'll be okay. Like they have Manny Machado. They have other stars on this team that can carry them. They have a rotation that should be tremendous, but Tatis is the guy. And this is kind of, you know, they knew about his shoulder. His shoulder was 
an issue. Like it was something that they were relatively worried about. They knew that it was something that it, basically the shoulder pops out of its socket every now and again. He gets this, he has this issue. And so there was always the concern that it could be something else or it could be something more. So this is kind of the gamble you take, right? Like this is a guy, he's a generational star. He is, you know, he has the, the potential to be the face of baseball. The Padres have not had a player like him maybe ever. I mean, Tony Quinn was tremendous, but not in like, not centerpiece of the league kind of guy. And so they kind of put all their, you know, they put, so they locked him up long-term. They wanted to make sure that like, you know, they were showing Padres baseball is different now. And that's part of a new ownership group as well. Like that's new owners who've come in a new managing partner who's, who's decided to spend and has taken a slightly different approach with them. This is the risk though. And you know, nobody is, nobody is immune from this. I mean, we've seen, even if he's fine this year, like the implications are, are incredible. I mean, this is the thing with Chris Bryant, right? Chris Bryant, MVP in 2016, rookie of the year, the year before, you know, one of the top five players in baseball, we might've said back then, and no, he's never had a serious injury, but it's these ticky tack little things that he's always just, it just saps you of your athleticism, saps you of that little bit of like strength that you had or that little bit of flexibility. And all of a sudden you're not quite the same guy. I mean, I'm not suggesting that that's going to, what happens, that that's what happens to Tatis, but it could be what happens to Tatis. We've now seen him have a number of these ticky tack injuries, right? He had a hamstring issue a couple of years ago, he had some other thing last year that kept him out for 10 days or so like back injury stuff. Back injury, like he, yeah. Like there's definitely a possibility that he will be fine, that he'll come back and he'll be the same guy, but there's a possibility that he's not. And, you know, he can lose a lot and still be a, a tremendous player, but you know, the Padres have made a gamble that he's going to be a top five guy. And this is why, you know, we don't see these types of deals all that often with Mookie Betts we know what monkey bats is Mike Trout. We know what he is, right? Tatis. We think what we think we know what he's going to be. We think he's going to be that, but he's not that yet. And he's only, uh, what is he? 16 years old. He's what are you, <laughs> 22, 22. He's 22 years old. So like, there's still, yes, he's still like growing it, growing into himself and he's not even at his physical prime yet, but there's also injury things that can happen. And, you know, a lot can happen between 22 and 32. So, it is a minor thing for this season. I think, I hope, you know, it's a slight tear. So it's something that's going to bother him all year. It's, I don't think it's going to go away, but I do. I don't think we're going to lose him for the year. So I think, you know, it's less of a, it's maybe like, you know, 20% of a problem this year, but long-term I worry about it for sure. I do too. And you mentioned his age. I was thinking the same thing while well, he's 22. He's got this kind of injury history. And then in the other part of my head, I'm thinking, well, he's only 22. It's better than it's happening. than he was 27 or 32 where your body doesn't hear your body body does not heal. <laughs> Look at all those words yeah. from injury as well as it does maybe as when you're 22. So that's a plus, but I don't think that there's a positive way to spin this. Even the good news on a report back from uh, an exam with Tatis in this context, he's still hurt and it still stinks. And I just, I hope absolutely for the best and not just because he was our first pick in the podcast league for, (laughs) but honestly, I don't know that it does get better. uh, It does get any more significant in terms of an injury. But I will Uh, say at least we like the Padres have Haseon Kim ready to step in. Yeah. Yeah. 
And you know, the Padres, they've got Kim, they've got Cronenworth. Like, they really probably are built to absorb this better than any other team. That's really interesting to me, but... That's so, the thing. Like, That's like, the thing about signing Profar and Haseon Kim is like, yes, you have extra bodies now, but because of the, the versatility of those players, they've also protected against the injury at literally any position except for catcher. And the Dodgers are built the same way. If any one person goes down, they're going to be able to slot someone in who's at least league average and it won't tank their season. I mean, one player who is significantly below average can tank your season. It can, it can be that simple. It's not going to happen to the Padres or the, or the Dodgers. Really interesting stuff overall. We obviously we hope Tatis comes clear as possible when it comes to this injury. Um, I'm kind of just bummed about James Paxton. I want him to be good and I want him to be healthy. And I'm bummed about Tim Anderson because he's another guy who's also just very fun, very dynamic personality. We don't have a lot of in baseball, so our best yeah. to those guys. And, uh, and but, what are they going to do with shortstop now? Their backup shortstop is already playing left field. Like Larry Garcia. I mean, he's not really. Andrew Vaughn's playing out there. But Larry Garcia, right. they've tried very hard not to stick him, not to get him in the field. And now he's going to be there. He's going to be their starting shortstop. And and that just highlights how the White Sox are not prepared for any kind of significant injury. They lost Deloitte. They're doing all sorts of weird left field DH first base shuffles now. And... Uh, they've got another hole to plug, at least for a little bit, with Anderson, who did just go on the IL today, I think. But yeah, and the hamstring is, you know, it can be a small thing, but it can really, it can be, it can really linger. So you know, especially for a guy where speed is such a big part of his game, it'll be interesting to see how he's able to come back from it, I and mean, how quickly he's able to come back from it. Yeah, problematic. And, and when the injuries are muscular based uh, or or tendon based, they tend to be bigger problems than if it's just like a broken bone or something and you get the strict timeline on it, right? Uh, so in other news, that's a little more positive. The Blue Jays signed Ross Atkins to an extension as their GM. He's now going to be in that position through 2026. Do you like it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, why not? I mean, it's a little bit of a, you know, prisoner of the moment kind of deal, but he's been there forever. Like they know that he's the guy, they believe that he's the guy. So, and he's done a nice job of putting them in this position to, to win. Like he's been the guy who's, who's built up that system and, you know, brought Vlad Guerrero and Bo Bichette and Kevin Biggio and all these guys along. So um, I'm not sure when he took over, but he's been there now for quite some time. I had to look to see when he, when he got the job. It has been a while, right? Because Anthopolis went to Atlanta and he took over from that point. So we're talking at least a few years in the, in the fallout of Atlanta's uh, front office mess, uh, which, you know, that reminds me of another another strange penalty doled out by the league, uh, banning John Coppolella for life when he did things that are not great, but basically a ton of teams do what he did, what he did with, uh, with, with farm players and, and getting them signed at really young ages. Um, just absolutely yeah. weird stuff all around. Yeah, but good for Atkins. He's been there since I see now December 2015. So, you know, they trust him. They know they know who they have there. And at least right now, it seems like I mean he's built multiple contenders there. So they seem like they're in a, he's he knows what he's doing. Absolutely. And really that brings us to the Yankees acquiring Rugneto Door from the Rangers who are going to basically pay him to just play for the Yankees. They got two people, two real live baseball players back. It's minor yeah. leaguers. Kind of impressive, right? Oh, very impressive. <laughs> they got 
actual <laughs> baseball players, guys who like have their own gloves and bats and like cleats. And they've, they've been out there before they've been doing it. They're like actual guys who have a chance of being major leaguers when they had resigned themselves to just paying order to go away and told the league that they were willing to do that. I don't totally understand it from the Yankees perspective. I don't know why you give up people. I don't know why you give up anything for, for him, even if, even though they don't have to, it's not going to cost anything to the luxury tax bill. And maybe they think that, you know, their short porch and right will help him recapture something, but I don't know. It's been a while since he's been, I mean, he's never really been right. His all best, that his best helpful. season was 2015 and 2016. He had exactly 2.5 FR each of those seasons. Uh, he came close again in 2018, but otherwise, like there have been points where he's a negative player. He was a negative player last year. He was a negative player in 2017. He was barely anything in 2019. A large part of his career at this point is defined by what he has not become. And yeah, I think it's a bit of an odd move for a Yankees club that has, like some of the NL West teams, really built themselves up well to be able to handle injuries. I get that he's depth. I get that you, your plan for Ruggie Odor as a player in your org, if you're the Yankees, is not to really put him on the field. And if you have to, you're in trouble, most likely. Uh, I had somebody mention to me, maybe they see it as like a, a chance to make a tweak like they did with Luke Voigt or take advantage of a player who's just not being uh, embraced as best as he could be, like Luke Voigt was with the Cardinals and that deal. I don't know that, though. That, like Voigt was not given a chance in the major leagues by the Cardinals, Odor has been in the majors every year since 2014. We know what he is as a player. I don't think he's one subtle tweak away from an analytics department that suddenly he's going to be everything we thought he could be nearly a decade ago. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I will say is that his most of his value has been tied to his power. And, you know, he should his power will play better with the Yankees than it did in Texas. So maybe there's something there, but he still doesn't walk enough and he strikes out too much. and He's not a great defender and, you know, basically doesn't do very many things all that well. So <laughs> you're making him and, sound so appealing. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, maybe, yeah. And it, I don't understand it. Just like I did not understand the same day when the Braves traded for Orlando Arcia. And it was like, within hours, he's like, why are all the good teams <laughs> trading for all the bad infielders? What is happening? There's the, did the Yankees and Braves lose a bet here? I mean, I just don't understand. I mean, <laughs> Orlando Arcia is has long been a guy that I do not that I have not understood. I don't know why the Brewers stuck with him for so long when he's basically only once been at all a useful player. And that was, you know, back when he was 20, what was he, 21, 22 or something. When he was 22 in 2017, he was fine. But otherwise, he's been pretty much horrible every season, <laughs> except for the playoffs. He is good in the playoffs. So maybe the Braves, you know, they need a, a playoff specialist. So <laughs> Maybe, maybe that's what he's there for. You know, sit down, relax for a bit. Plus, the Braves have, like, a lot of utility infielders, yeah. right? They have, I mean, they clearly don't believe in Johan Camargo anymore. And he's the guy who's up right now. And they have Adrianza, who's gone for who knows how long. You know, they've not really, they're not really saying why he's gone right now. So, so maybe it's a longer-term thing. Arcia, he's fun. He's got swagger, but and he have four for four skill. in a again in a play-in game against the Cubs. So there's that. But he's also been, you know, over the last four seasons, 
four seasons, or let's say the last three seasons of being a, a regular, he's been worth negative 0.1 war. Like since that 1.4 war season in 2017 as a 22-year-old, he's accrued negative 0.1 war over three seasons. Three seasons. You have to divide that by three yeah. to get his value per season. <laughs> like, And yet the Brewers have been, have been rolling with him for... I mean, I wrote about him. He was one of my Wilmer Default All-Stars. These guys who I just don't understand why they get so much playing time. And they really do have the potential to tank your team. I mean, for the Braves, I guess he's fine. You don't plan on starting him. And he's a guy who's been there, you know, quote unquote, been there. And he has played his best in the playoffs. So maybe you're like, you know, worst case, he's not going to be cowed by the moment. I don't know. And for the Brewers, it's just kind of interesting because they stick by him. They start him regularly. Start him for four seasons. <laughs> regularly, and then they just decide to trade him. Yeah, he so he played over four hundred games in the last four years for them. <laughs> yeah, I mean they they stuck with the guy, like really stuck with them. Yeah, and, and it seemed like they were going to again this year. Almost five hundred uh, games. Goodness, uh, and just as a bit of symmetry, I know it's only been four games this year for Arcia. Each of his average, his OBP, and his slugging right now are at .091. So, the whopping .182 OPS, just fabulous stuff, with a WOBA of .081. Yeah, more power to Atlanta, I guess. Maybe they'll get something out of him. Maybe they don't need him. Maybe he's just the Ruggie Hodor for them, where they hope they don't have to play him, but they'll be okay-ish if they do. He looks like a good player. He, he's like <laughs> Wilmer Defoe. He looks like he would be a good player. He's athletic. He's fluid. But he's just not. It just the results have not been there. There's nothing. There's no you know evidence to suggest that he's going to be a good professional baseball player. I just I just don't I just don't totally understand why he keeps getting significant chances. He's just not. Uh, one more big note. We know now some clarity on the Nationals and who they had to place on the injured list for presumably COVID-related reasons. These guys were placed on that list without any particular designation, so that's kind of like the tip-off without really tipping us off. Uh, Jan Gomes, Alex Avila, Patrick Corbin, Brad Hand, John Lester, Josh Harrison, Jordy Mercer, Josh Bell, Kyle Schwarber. A lot of big names on that list, right? That is a huge chunk of their roster and a huge chunk of the guys they were really counting on out of the gate. How do you react to a team needing to do this with a COVID outbreak? Well, there are two things that are really fascinating about this particular list of players. The first is that a day before the season starts, they end up having to sign Jonathan Lucroy to be their starting catcher. And he's now their starting catcher. Yeah. Like straight up. He's been there. He's been there from for one day. The first time he caught Max Scherzer was in game one yesterday, right? So like they're totally have to replace their entire catching crew, which is interesting. The other part that's kind of interesting is this is pretty much their entire off season. It's like all of Mike Rizzo's work this off season is now gone. Lester, Schwarber, Josh Bell, Alex Avila, Jordy Mercer, Brad Hand, even Josh Harrison was signed back this year. All these guys, this is pretty much all the work they did this off season. And now they're all sidelined. A bunch of them, probably about half of them won't see long-term effects. You know, four of them presumably have, have tested positive and the other five, we're being told are, are on the DL for because of contact tracing. So we don't know who those guys are who actually tested positive and we don't know if they're actually sick or if there's going to be long-term effects. If there are, yeah, this is a, this is an impactful list. I think no more so than, than Corbin. I mean, you can't, they can't lose Patrick Corbin. 
he simply has to be there. They don't have another guy who can step in for them. Right. We've talked about it, how it doesn't exist in their organization. Right. Exactly. We've talked about how they're top heavy and how they really don't have the depth to be able to dip into for either hitters or pitchers. And Corbin is such a big deal. So much seems to hinge on him uh, for their season and, and whether his fastball velocity sticks around, whether this interrupts any rhythm he had had and whether it has uh, longer term consequences that take like, sure, maybe he comes back quickly, but the consequences from these kinds of things tend to iron themselves out even after the players are back. And I think that is the most curious thing to me that we have to that we have to consider and that we can't possibly process until it's happening. I, I don't know yeah. what this does for the Nats in the NL East. I don't know if it sets them back. I don't know if it condenses their schedule too, too much. But it, it's not a good thing, right? Like we can spin it any positive way we want, but just like the Tatis injury, it's not good. Right. Plus, what is going on in Nats clubhouse? Scherzer, you got to let these new guys sit at the cool kids table. You can't just make them all sit together on the back of the plane. Like, <laughs> yes, you know, let them intermingle. Talk to these new guys, you know, bring them over. See how they're doing. You can't just make them all sit together. My goodness. The irony Patrick there. Corbin and Jan Gomes, good on them for going in there and getting messing up with those new guys. <laughs> the irony there to, to bring in Scherzer is that he drove back himself, right? He wasn't on he the He wasn't even there. <laughs> uh, so really, that brings us to... The piece of the week for Pitcher List. Really, I don't know that there's one specific piece that stuck out to me. What I would advise everybody to go and read are Nick's uh, starting pitcher roundups each day that he does. He puts them out at like midnight each night because uh, he's uh, he's a cyborg and doesn't sleep. Um, so he puts them out. But I think they're a great way to recap the previous day's starters. Whether you play fantasy or not, they're fun to read simply because they do give you a heads up on who did what as starting pitchers. And if you read them consistently, then you kind of get a vibe on what the league is doing consistently. So I think uh, they're a great way to spend a few minutes each morning. They're there literally anytime you wake up, unless you're working a graveyard shift and you wake up at like 8 p.m. to go to work. They won't be there for a few hours, but Nick gets them out pretty much before you could possibly wake up any given day. That'll really do it all for us this week. TC, where can we find you online? You know, go to Pitch List on Friday. I have a piece coming out about the Nationals to see. Obviously, I'll be talking about their roster and how it looks now and whether or not they are prepared to handle these these kinds of losses. Spoiler, they are not. <laughs> and that's a weekly uh, but thing, right? That's every Friday. You can, you can end your week strong with TC. Yeah, that's, this is true. Uh, you can also find me at uh, MLB Trade Rumors or on Twitter at TC Zanka. And you can find me at Tim Jackson Says on Twitter. You can find me kicking around BP. Again, our Discord community that if you join PL Plus, you can, of course, come in and, and talk to any number of, of the staff and the great community that we've built there. Uh, I had just written up Chris Flexen for the Mariners at BP and how he really, really looks different. He looks like a totally new guy. Uh, he's not maybe not going to be turning into some mega ace, but he's going to be a, a big piece of the rotation. It seems it's a haircut, right? <laughs> yeah. Totally different hair, hair yeah. style. That's it. He uh, got all of his hairs cut. His ears are totally lowered, and he's just <laughs> blowing things, blowing the roof off the place out in Seattle. Uh, but I'll be looking forward to that, and especially now that Paxton went down, uh, that you know he's probably going to need to stick in that rotation. They can't keep going to six guys necessarily. But you better, better be careful because you can't flex in too much. Otherwise, the commissioner <laughs> might suspend you. That's the best flexing pun I've heard. 
you can find us as a podcast at Breaking Pod PL, and you can email us at BreakingPodPL at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you and interact with you a little bit. Uh, and of course, if you would be so gracious as to rate us five stars and leave a wonderful comment for us, it would do just, it would mean the world to us and it would do wonders. So uh, that's all for us this week. Thanks for spending some time with us. We can't wait to spend some more time with you next week. Have a great week, everybody.